Thank you, Alicia. Hey, guys, good morning. Good to see you. How's it going? Awesome. Great. Uh, happy uh, Dad's Weekend to you guys, or Parents' Weekend, I think they call it now, but um, it's good to have some families here visiting. Um, my name is Josh, if we haven't met, and uh, if you haven't yet, uh, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're hanging out uh, together this morning. Uh, full disclosure, many of you know this about me, some of you do not, um, but I am a hugger. I love to hug. Uh, I need to try to get better at discerning. Some of you people who are like, do not hug me. Um, I apologize if I've ever made you feel uncomfortable, but I'm a hugger. My favorite people in the world to hug are my wife, right? Okay, number one. Uh, but two, I love hugging my children. And if you hang out with me at my house, uh, often we're just sitting around and I'll be like, hey, come on over here. Give me a hug, you know? <laughs> Eden, get over here. Hug me. Like I just call for it all the time. And I would say 20% of the time, their hugs are the best, like the best hugs. They give the best hugs and they really wrap their arms around your neck. You know, they give the best hugs. 80% of the time, they're absolutely terrible because they'll walk over very reluctantly and kind of just put the shoulder down and do this lazy lean in. They don't even do anything other than this. And I always criticize them. I'm like, you, that is not a hug. They're like, yes, I'm hugging you. Of course I'm hugging you. I'm like, no, you're not. That is not a hug. And you would know too, right? As an adult, if someone hugged you like this, you would say, that is not a hug. Right? But they're trying to convince me this is a hug, and I'm like, that is not a hug. Right? There's things in life that we can call something, and oftentimes it doesn't represent it at all. Because like, when you get hugged, you know it. When someone's holding out on you, you know it as well. In the same way, though, there are a lot of things that make a church a church. And there are oftentimes things and behaviors that a church can, can, can have and they can call themselves a church, but they're just really not being a church at all. And number one at the top of that list is unity. When a church is not experiencing unity, it is not functioning as a church. You can call it a hug, but it's just not a hug. You can call it a church, but it's not being a church at all. And it's a really important issue, this idea of unity. It's at the very top. And, and we get it, right? Like, you like unity, don't you? I mean, anybody here not like unity? Like, we all like it. It feels really good. Everyone's at peace. No one's like, I hate unity. I love conflict. If you do, talk to somebody about that, right? But we all, we love unity. So how do you get it? How do you not lose it? And why is it so important? This morning, uh, Paul is wrapping up his big foundational argument, which has taken place over the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. This church is not a healthy church. It's saying we're a church. And Paul's saying, you're not behaving like one at all. And the main foundational problem is disunity. They're disunified. There's some ugly things happening, and he's saying, you're not being a church. Not at all. There's a huge lack of unity here in this church. It's the foundational thing. So how do we get it? This chapter is so helpful in answering that question. It's foundational for our lives as well. And I believe this chapter gives us the secret to unity. That's what I call this, the secret to unity. It should be on the screen behind me. This is kind of a roadmap. I think in verses 1 through 4, we see what creates disunity. And then 5 to the end, we see the secret to unity. And the secret to it, Paul says, is having this sober view of leaders and having a sober view of you. It's having a clear, right perspective of leaders, who they are and what they do. And having a real clear perspective of who you are, like who you really are. 
So the first thing is what creates disunity. This is what Paul gets at. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. He says, But I, brothers, we're just addressing the church as a whole, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh, which means worldly. Right? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another says, I follow Paulos, are you not being merely human? Uh, right now, if you were to walk upstairs and you were to go visit our babies class, uh, you might hear some crying, right? You, uh, you might see some stealing of some toys, right? Just taking it away and not giving it back. You're going to see some tantrums maybe. You're also going to see some adorable faces. You're going to hear some cute sounds, hopefully see some smiling kids, and hopefully see some smiling adults, right? I mean, those people are up there serving, many of you, watching your children so you can be in here right now. But that's what you would see. And if you walked up there and you were expecting to see babies, because you should, it's a baby's class, and you saw them, you walked in and they were acting like babies. They were crying, they were stealing, they were throwing tantrums or something. Uh, you would view that in a certain way. You would expect it. You, you would see them, and even though that's not okay, you go, oh, they're doing that because they're babies. That's what babies do, right? And, and that right now, though, if we all looked over and we saw Jacob crying, um, what, crying's okay, okay? But I mean like baby crying, you know, like out of control, like calm down crying, you know, or Jacob just walking around grabbing your things and taking them away and running off, and you're going, uh, give that back, and he's, no, it's mine, you know, and this kind of like conflict <laughs> thing, you know, this would be very what? It'd be very awkward, right? It'd be very strange, wouldn't it, if Jacob was doing that sort of thing? It'd be really weird. We'd be like, this guy's a weirdo. Like, what's going on with this guy? We'd be weirded out. Why? Because we expect adults to act like adults. We don't expect adults to act like babies, do we? See, the church in Corinth was a mess. And Paul says, you're acting like babies. That's how I view you. You, you think you're mature. These people thought they were wise. They, they thought that they were spiritual. They thought that they were mature. And Paul comes out of the gate and he says, you guys are acting like babies. And you're supposed to be acting like adults. You think you're wise. You're being foolish. He uses all their words that they use for themselves against them. I actually love the way Eugene Peterson uh, puts this. He says, um, basically Paul's saying, well then, I'll nurse you since you don't seem capable of anything more. As long as you grab for what makes you feel good or makes you look important, are you really much different than a babe at the breast, content only when everything's going your way? See, Paul comes out and he says that they're behaving as if they're merely human, merely human, as if they are just like everyone else around them. There basically appears to be no difference between the people in Corinth at large and the people in this church. And so what Paul hears about and sees in the church is jealousy. That's what's creating the disunity. They're jealous, meaning that they see something that someone else has and they want it. Or something good happens to somebody else and they're a little upset about it because they wish that were happening to them or their little tribe of people or whatever it might be. There's jealousy. Then he says um, there's strife, meaning there's conflict, there's fighting among them. This is what's creating this 
disunity. And this matters deeply to God. It, it matters very deeply to God because what we see this morning is that God is building something in Corinth. He's growing something in Corinth. He's indwelling something in Corinth. And his adults acting like babies isn't really cute. It's not really funny. It's actually really awkward. It's embarrassing. It's ugly. And the reason it's ugly is because the church represents Jesus. He's going to say to them, you're the temple of the living God. And God himself is one. He cannot be divided. So, so what begins to mature a church into a unified presence that glorifies Jesus, even in a city like Corvallis? What will begin to unify a church that would glorify the person of Jesus here in a city like ours? What creates unity? What's the secret? Well, in a way, the secret is that, that, that you all, in a group like a group like ours, we'd all have to have the same purpose and the same goal. That often will create unity. But the goal that a group must have to have true unity, it can't be an achievement goal, it can't be an outcome goal, and it can't be a winning goal. It has to be a glory goal. I mean, just think about it. If you've ever been on a team, like a sports team or something, if you're in gymnastics or basketball or something, you could all have a similar achievement goal. You all want to win the championship. You all want the trophy, whatever it might be. You want the t-shirt, Okay. That's not necessarily going to unify you because if you all have different ideas of who's more important than who, it's going to create disunity. If you have different ideas on how to actually get there and how you're going to achieve it, you're not going to have unity. It's the same for like a group project or something you're working on at work with, with uh, a group of people. You could all have the same goal, but if you have different ideas of how to do it or different ideas of who deserves the glory for it more... There's not going to be unity. So it has to be a glory goal, and it also has to entail everybody in that group submitting to one person who is ultimately the wisest person who's going to say, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. We all go, I'm in. And that's what we see in this passage. Paul says, you've got to have a sober view of leaders and a sober view of you. So having a sober view of Christian leaders is really important. Look with me in verse 5. He says, what then is Apollos, what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold and silver and precious stones or wood or hay or straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Verse 5 is really important. These verses don't begin by saying, who is Apollos and who is Paul? It's not what he says. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? What he means is, what is their function? What's their function? 
See, what happened is Paul, he lived in Corinth for a year and a half. He planted a church. He sailed away to plant more churches. Apollos came in. He was like a brilliant orator. And he began to water the seeds that Paul had planted. This church was birthed. Apollos is now the pastor of this church. And people were coming in, and then then there was this problem. This was the main problem. They were coming in, and they were saying, well, I belong to Apollos. This idea of I follow these people, it's an idea of belonging. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Paul. And what they're doing is they're using their favorite Christian leaders as a way to identify themselves, as a way to kind of gain some sort of association or to gain some respectable standing or prestige. So what's happening is they're saying, I follow Paul. So if you don't, then poor you. You don't see things as clearly as I do. Well, I, I've listened to Paul. He makes me somebody. I'm a better Christian than you. Division, right? They feel superior, that they're the ones who are truly following Jesus the right way. They're using leaders and they're elevating them onto these pedestals, but that's not who Jesus' leaders are. That's what we're told here. That's a bad view of leadership. That's a terrible view. We don't belong to leaders. That's what he says. And there's three things that Christian leaders are described as here. Number one, they're servants. Number two, they're farmers. And number three, they're builders. So he says, let me give you a perspective of leadership that actually is God's perspective. First, they're servants. Fundamentally, guys, this is the first and primary description of leadership. That's why he starts this way, I believe. If, if you are a leader, or if you desire to be a leader, we are fundamentally servants. Hear me very clearly. Christian leaders are not leaders who serve. Christian leaders are fundamentally servants who lead. To be a leader doesn't mean that you're, you, you lead in some prominent way, and then you kind of get your serving quotas in. Well, I better do that act just so I you know, don't get too prideful or something. I'm going to serve in this capacity. No, that's not what a Christian leader is. A Christian leader is someone who is a servant, and they lead by being a servant. Secondly, though, who are they serving? Who are they serving? Most of the time, we would think, well, we're serving people. Because if, if you're a servant, you're, you're submitting to somebody, you're serving somebody, and we would think it might be the church, but that's not the case here at all. Because every servant bows or bends their will to some boss. This is an intermission really fast. So if, if, if you're a, a servant, you have to submit yourself to some other leader, okay? That's what you have to do. And here, though, so who is the Lord? Who is the master of these verses? It's not the church, because it says that they are servants, what? As the Lord assigned. So to be a leader means that you are serving Jesus. You're serving Jesus, and by you serving Jesus, as a byproduct of that, you're serving other people. So he says in verse 7 that he and Apollos, they aren't anything. If I'm a servant, then I'm not anything. That's what he says. Anything. And honestly, this is really convicting so often uh, in my life. Because just think about it. If Paul says he isn't anything, if Apollos isn't anything, then I'm definitely not anything. 
And not to be mean, but that means you aren't anything either. Right? Or whoever it is that you've just placed on a pedestal, they're not anything either. If they're a Christian doing things in the name of Jesus, they are servants of Jesus. So if you want to know what it looks like to be a leader in your home, a leader in your marriage, a leader in the church, a leader in your classroom or your appointment room or your place of work, serve. But don't just do the act of serving. You are fundamentally a servant who leads. Secondly, we are farmers. Paul says in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. That's what he says there in verse 9. Well, what kind of workers? He says, he just described it, workers that plant seeds, workers that water these seeds. So Paul equates the work of ministry to planting and watering. This is that whole idea of method. How in the world are we going to accomplish this goal, right? It's, it's having this unified vision of how this is done. He says, we plant and we watered. I planted, Apollos watered. And both of those words are past tense. We did that. But what God is doing here is actually in the imperfect tense, meaning God is continuously providing the growth. We did our job. God's still working. He's the one who's doing the growing. So in Christian leadership, our job is faithfulness. It's just showing up. It's planting seeds. It's watering, right? So just think about it. To be a good farmer, it requires that you are what? You're there. If you're traveling all the time, you're neglecting your field, it's going to be a pretty bad field, isn't it? You're not going to make good money. You're not going to have a good crop. It won't be a healthy field at all. A Christian leader needs to be faithfully present, but also faithfully throwing seeds and watering those seeds. The, the imagery here of Christian leadership as being a farmer was actually first used by Jesus. When he was giving a parable, he likened the idea of ministry to casting seeds on different types of soil. And he said that the seed is the word of God. So this should inform us what it means to be a Christian leader. It means that in our ministry, you're sowing seeds of the word of God. You're, you're cultivating the ground so it could be received. You're, you're watering this, this word. So as leaders or pastors or if you're a campus minister, whatever role you play in leadership, your job is faithfulness. It's cultivation. It's hard work. As farmers, by nature, we're hardworking. Someone pointed this out to me just a couple days ago. It's such an obvious statement, but it's so true. If you live in this valley long enough, uh, you're going to meet a farmer, right? I grew up in Montana. I met a few uh, cattle farmers in my day, right? You know what? Every, quality, every single one of them had this one quality about them. You want to know what it is? They were all really hardworking. Have you ever met a lazy farmer? Have you ever met one? No one has, right? Because if you've ever met a lazy farmer, they're not going to be a farmer for very long, are they? Right? They gotta, you got to work hard. you got to show up. you got to do the work. you got to be present. Right? This is the trait of every single farmer. And so Paul and Apollos and any other faithful Christian leader is a farmer, but they have the same glory goal. That's why Paul says, we are one. I'm just, I'm just doing this job as a servant. We're doing the same thing. We just have different roles. But we're one. Why? Because they have the same glory goal. So if you've elevated a leader to a more prominent place over other Christian leaders, what you have done, actually, you guys, is you have failed to see that all Christian leaders, if they are faithfully serving Jesus, if they're after his glory, you have failed to see that they aren't competitors. One can't be better than the other. 
right? Because they're one. They're one. See, our view should be completely and utterly shaped by the leader's place in relation to God. The third image, though, is the one of a builder. One of a builder. This one starts in verse 10. Paul says, according to the grace of God given to me, Paul, a skilled master builder, he lays the foundation, which verse 11 tells you what the foundation is. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. See, Apollos and others have now come, and they're building upon this foundation, and he says he laid the foundation by the grace of God. God gave him the grace, the ability to actually lay Jesus down as the foundation for this church. So right off the bat, if we liken Christian leadership to being a builder, the most important thing in building, and I don't even build stuff. I'm a terrible builder, but even I know this. The most important thing in building is what? It's the foundation, isn't it? It's the foundation, the very platform and basis for which everything else stands upon. The foundation is the most essential thing in building. Uh, I think it was like a little over five years ago, Liz and I were going and we were looking at buying a house, and we were on a very small budget. And there was this house that was like a really old house. It was really big. It was over in like an older, nicer part of Corvallis. And we were like, oh, my gosh, why is this so affordable? It was just outside of our price range. But if you ever looked at a house, you have your budget, and you're like, anything kind of outside of it, you're like, well, we should take a look, you know? And so we still went, and we showed up, and we like walked around the whole house, and we're like, man, this is amazing. And I kind of remember towards the end just asking, like, why is this so cheap? I mean, this is a nice house, a nice part of town. And the lady said to us, it has a bad foundation. And this, no one will insure this house. No one will even sell it to you unless you fix the foundation. Michael, like, well, how much is that going to cost? Somewhere in like six figures. We're like, oh, okay. Well, it was fun. You know, it was great to look at. <laughs> but the thing is, even if we were like, ah, who cares? You know, we could still buy it. And even if they'd give, you know, if they would sell us the house for what it was, right, that would be a bad decision because if that foundation shifts at all, Whatever and whoever in that house is in that house, it's not going to go very well, is it? Like, we're in a very old theater right now. Could you imagine if the foundation just shifted and gave out? We would, at that moment, realize how important a foundation is, wouldn't we? To put it to you a different way, why do you never see people living in sandcastles, right? I mean, they're castles, right? If you built a big enough one, why don't you ever see somebody living in a sandcastle? I know it's stupid, but still, it's, there's a good point to it, right? Because... <laughs> The moment it rains, what's going to happen? You're hosed, aren't you? Right? Because it's a terrible foundation. Right? Foundations are, are very, very important, aren't they? So praise be to God. Seriously. Praise be to God that Christianity, that your faith, that our church, that every local church the community of Jesus, we aren't built on someone's good ideas. Our foundation isn't some group of people that wanted to create a new religion years ago, and they're like, this is a good one. This will keep people in order. Praise be to God that that is not our foundation, is it? Not at all. Our foundation it rests on none other than the Son of God himself, Jesus. He is our foundation. We build our lives upon him. We build our lives upon his sacrificial and triumphant love. Guys, Jesus is the ground beneath our feet. Right? They are, and we're building upon that ground. The rest of the building, it can crumble, but the foundation will remain. Always. 
And Paul says Christian leaders are building, meaning they're ministering, they're building upon Jesus, and they're building upon the work of others that have gone before them. But then he says something very sobering and interesting, really sobering. He says, be careful then how you build. And he gets into different materials. Some of them can withstand fire, and some of them definitely cannot, like wood and hay and straw. And he says this because he goes, one day, guys, we will all stand before God. And no one will be giggling, you know, on that day kind of thing. It'll be a very, like, sobering moment. He says, in that moment, it will be proved the kind of work that we did. And there's this idea of judgment because he uses the imagery of fire, which the image of fire is, is always usually a pictorial way of describing judgment, which the idea of judgment just means to bring into light the things that are to show things for what they truly are. That's, that's what will happen at judgment. And God is going to right all wrongs. He's going to administer justice. And we'll all, we'll all experience this. And Paul says to the church and to its leaders, be careful how you build because you might build something that looks awesome. But one day, it'll be proven that that thing was just really maybe you-centered. Or you manipulated things to try to manufacture some growth to make it look like something was really happening. One day, everything will be found out. It'll, it'll prove what it really is. And so this idea that Christian leaders are builders, it's a solemn warning to, number one, be careful about the leaders that you place over you because they're building something, and it might not be an eternal thing. But number two, be careful how you as a leader are leading it's actually really terrifying because a passage like this alone, it actually implies, you guys, that there are a lot of us in the world. There's a lot of us. I'm not excluded from this. There are a lot of people in this world right now who are doing work in the name of Jesus, probably a lot of people who think that they're doing great ministry. And, and a passage like this warns us that, that, that they might not be doing it according to the desires of Jesus or ministering for the sake of his glory, they're not doing his work in his way so it won't last. They might be actually deceiving themselves and doing it for their own glory and their own name. And he says, so sober up. Leaders, sober up. People in the church, be sober. These people, Paul says, they will experience a sobering day of sadness and loss because they will see that all they worked in their life for it will have amounted to nothing. See, the only things that last are things done Jesus' way for Jesus' glory. Jesus' way for Jesus' glory. So all in all here, we have that leaders are servants, they're farmers, they're builders. And in order to achieve unity, we need a sober view of Christian leadership in the church. Guys, you need leaders, I need leaders in my life. So who's your leader? What are your expectations of them? I want to encourage you to be a part of a church where the leaders are actually embodying these things. And I think it's important that you and I, we hold our leaders to these standards, to these things. We, we should avoid adopting the world's wisdom, which Paul's really attacked a lot. And we should avoid the world's wisdom and just desire our leaders to be eloquent speakers or to be trendy people or to kind of look the part. The stuff that Paul's describing here is servants, leaders, builders. It's not sexy, is it? Not at all, but it'll bring glory to Jesus and it'll last. See, unity comes when we have a sober view of leadership, 
when we are after the same glory goal and we have agreement on building it off of Jesus and his methods. But lastly, we have to have a sober view of you and me. We have to have a sober view of ourselves. We see this in verse 9b, verses 17 through 23. Just remember here for a second, this whole section, it, it started with Paul calling these Corinthian people babies. Remember that? We were all looking around at Jacob going, you're being weird, right? That's what this whole thing started out as. He says, you're being babies, you're not being big boys and big girls, right? They, they thought they were being spiritual and mature, and he pointed out that they had a bad vision of themselves. It was a terrible perspective. They weren't seeing themselves clearly. Have you ever experienced that in your own life? Have you ever thought you were a certain way, then something happened, and you're like, oh my gosh, I, did, I was not seeing myself clearly. That was a blind spot. Have you ever experienced that? I, this is burned into my memory. When I was in sixth grade, I, um, I just got this idea that I thought I was going to be so cool to make every one of my hairs stand on end. And I basically used an entitled bottle of hairspray to hold it there. And then I was into this idea of like, to look good, you got to match your, cl- your colors. So I had this like olive green t-shirt and these like kind of green pants that were close, but not exactly. I had green shoes on. So I was dressed matching in green. It didn't really match at all. I thought I looked awesome, okay? So I headed out my door and I went to youth group. This sounds like a youth group story, right? Um, (laughs) I sent out the door, I went to youth group. I walked in, honestly guys, I walked in with a lot of swagger. Like I was just like, "This this is it. And I walked in and there was this group of girls that I knew I really would love to impress. And they, one of them saw me and pointed, just vivid, pointed, and they all turned and looked. And almost in unison, they all went, whoa. <laughs> but not like, whoa, look at that guy. He's awesome. It was like, whoa, what is wrong with that person? <laughs> and, uh, and then right after they all went, whoa, they all just started laughing, okay, just laughing. I didn't need to defend myself. I didn't need to even have a conversation. I knew right away I had a bad perspective of myself when I walked out of the house, right? I thought I looked sweet, okay? And immediately I was like, nope, I got real sober real quick. I had a bad view of myself and I went in the bathroom, I looked in the mirror and I was like, you're an idiot, okay? <laughs> and I don't remember what happened after that, but that was, that was my sobering moment of myself, right? These Jesus followers, they think they're awesome, but really they've used this like entire hairspray bottle and, and they don't know how to dress themselves. They're acting like babies who are jealous and fighting and fussy. And they're only going to be calm when they're nursing, Paul says. But look what Paul does here. What does Paul do? This is so important. What does he do? He doesn't say, you guys are idiots. He doesn't say, look at you. You're so dumb. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He tells them who they really are according to the gospel. He he tells them who they really are by the grace of God. He says, because of God's grace, he says, you have a new identity. This is actually, I want you to see, this is the way that God sees you. This is who you really are. They need to see themselves this way if they're going to have unity in the church. And I don't have time to go through them all in detail, but he just tells them who they are in the eyes of God. He says, you are God's field, verse 9. You are God's building, verse 9. We've already talked about farming and building. Uh, He says, number three, you are God's temple, 
We see that in verse 16. You are God's temple. And what does he say when he starts? He says, don't you know? He says, do you not know this? You are the temple of God. You are the temple of God. These people, guys, he says, you've received the spirit, but you're acting like you haven't. So you can receive the spirit and not even produce any fruit that you have the spirit, Paul's saying. These people are God's dwelling place. To be very clear here, God does live in each one of us as individuals. He does. That's what happens when you receive Jesus. You're born again. You receive the spirit of God in your life. But this you here is plural. What he's saying is you guys together, together as a whole, you are the dwelling place of God. The very presence of God lives and reigns in you. And he says that temple is holy. God is set apart. There's no one like him. You are that temple. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I mean, really? See, God is building something in Corvallis or Albany, wherever you live. He's building something. He is alive and well. He's not dead. He's living. He's indwelling people. He's living in Corvallis. He's creating this alternative community. That's what it means to be holy. It's going to be different. It's an alternative community wherever he's building and living. Guys, do you see who you really are? Do you not know? I mean, are you seeing yourself clearly this morning? If you follow Jesus as your Savior, are you seeing yourself clearly? You are God's field. You're God's building. You're God's temple. You are his. Those are all possessive things. You are God's possession. You belong to God. God is cultivating. God is growing. It is God that you stand upon. It is God who lives in you. You belong to God. You don't belong to anybody else. You know when, uh, I do this all the time. You know when you're listening to a song and it's like your favorite song? If you're anything like me, I love putting my headphones on and I enjoy every bit of it. Like every little melody, every word, every like beat of the drum, every riff on the guitar or whatever it is. I'm like, oh, that's good. Oh, that's good. I might be weird, but I just, I love it. Every little bit of it. But in any song that you love, you're always waiting for a moment, aren't you? You're always waiting for that climax. You're waiting for the crescendo. One of my favorite songs is uh, Coldplay, Fix You. Love it. I would, I would, yeah, I wish I could be in Coldplay just to play that one song, honestly. But this isn't about me. Whatever. Okay. So nonetheless, I love that song. It's so good. Every bit of it's so good, but I just can't wait for the drums to come in on that bridge. When they come in, you're like, oh, yes, this is awesome. That's what I'm waiting for. And you're enjoying every little bit along the way, aren't you? You're waiting for that best part. You see... When it comes to seeing yourself clearly, all those previous things that I just said about you, those are awesome. Savor them. Enjoy them. But those aren't the crescendo. The crescendo of this section, which is really the crescendo of the first three chapters, and quite honestly, this crescendo has become one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Where's the crescendo? Savor the fact you're the field, you're the building, you're the temple of God. Wow. Okay, savor it, enjoy it. Where's the crescendo? Verse 23, what does it say? You are Christ's. Yes, you're the field. Yes, you're the building. Yes, you're the temple. But guys, come on. Don't be disunified. Be unified. You belong. You are Jesus's. You belong to Jesus. 
all of us, if you claim the name of Jesus, you belong to him. We all do. You are married to Jesus. You are united to Jesus. And no one or nothing can ever separate you from him. You are Christ's and Christ is God's. Paul didn't rip Jesus out of the Godhead here. He's basically just trying to show you, you belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to the Godhead. So do you think anyone's going to separate you from God? No. You belong to God. Do you see that? That's, your, that's it. You are his possession. You belong to him. Guys, if that isn't enough, if Jesus isn't enough, then nothing in this world ever will be. It never will be. You belong to Jesus. You don't belong to Paul. You don't belong to Apollos. You don't belong to Calvin or the Reformers. You don't belong to John Piper. You don't belong to Jen Hatmaker or Jen Wilkin or Jamie Ivey or something. You don't belong to Bob Goff or Francis Chan. You don't even primarily belong to Antioch or Karis. You don't primarily belong to Young Life or the Navigators or Crew. You don't primarily belong to the branch. You don't primarily belong to your spouse, to your kids, to your job. You belong to Jesus. You are his. This is why he says, don't boast in people. That's why he says in verse 21, not because it isn't healthy or just simply that it's wrong to do that, but because you need to have a sober view of people, that they're servants. They're one, all seeking the same glory goal. They have the same goal. If they don't, then their work's going to be burned up, Paul said. So if you have a sober view of people, you won't boast in them because you will have a big view of God and you'll see that you belong to him and you're just going to boast in him. See, this completely changes the way that you see people and everything else in life. This is why he follows up and says, don't boast in people for all things are yours. What he means is everything in life is basically a gift from God. It's a resource for you to be built up. It's for the sake of your own holiness and your own walking with God. These are resources for your building up, for your growth. And they're all yours. Why? Because you belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to God. Basically, all these things belong to God. I'm not the end. You're not the end. Jesus is the end. He's not a means to an end. He's the end, and I belong to him. See, the great crescendo, guys, it, it, when it comes to disunity, if, you really, if we really get this, it levels the field. You can't be disunified. If we all just believe we belong to Jesus, but we're all after the same glory goal, it's like um, being woken up with someone spraying cold water from a garden hose on you. That'll sober you up. Or just someone ran through here with an air horn all of a sudden, we'd all be like, whoa, you know? It's like that. That's what this truth will do to you. See, we belong to Jesus. We all do. Even that person you disagree with, that person that reads the other Bible translation that you disagree with or whatever, I don't know. We all belong to Jesus. And when you see that, when I see that, when we see leaders clearly, we see ourselves clearly in the light of the glorious gospel, my gosh, you guys, the church truly will begin to be an alternative community here in Corvallis. We will have to have unity. We will have to. We really will be seen as the living presence of God in our city. And that will be super attractive. 
Uh, I remember just being at Disneyland, and it was like 8 in the morning, 8.30. We were walking by a churro cart. I wasn't hungry for churros, but they were like pumping out the smell of churros. And you know, all of a sudden, you're like, I can go for a churro. Right, okay? <laughs> or you're walking by Subway, and you smell them pump the smells of the bread out. You know what I'm talking about? All of a sudden, you're like, I can go for a sandwich. Or you might not even be hungry for a sandwich, but man, the aroma of that stuff just makes you hungry, doesn't it? Guys, we're the aroma of Christ. That should be a beautiful thing. God is building something in Corvallis. He's alive in Corvallis because he's alive in you. Do you see it? God, this morning, I just pray um, that we would not just be hearers of your word. We'd be doers of your word, God. That we wouldn't be satisfied with maybe hearing some thoughts or reading some words. God, but we truly want to see your word move us into action. Lord Jesus, I pray for every local church in Corvallis. If we could, I would love to go painstakingly through each name and person, God. But we just pray right now for every church in this city, God, that there would be tremendous and beautiful Christ-like aroma unity in every single one of them. God, that every single one of us, there would be no competition, Lord, but, but we would all be after you and your glory, God. Would you be our glory goal? this morning in each of our lives. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.